You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. Recent guidelines for unstable angina and non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction can be characterized as a progression and fine-tuning of past recommendations that have contributed to a remarkable decline in the devastating outcomes of heart attack. What are the primary updates to this latest guideline? Can we expect the trend toward fewer adverse outcomes to continue? Our guest today is Dr. Elliot Antman, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and director of the Samuel A. Levine Cardiac Unit at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Antman's also chair of the writing group of the focused update to guidelines for STEMI and is a past chair of the ACCAHA Task Force on Practice Guidelines. Welcome, Dr. Antman. Thank you very much. Today we're going to review the unstable angina and non-ST segment elevation or NSTEMI guidelines. Perhaps we might start with a description of the first fork in the road. That would be to treat patients with an early invasive strategy or a more conservative approach. When one encounters a patient with unstable angina or non-ST elevation MI, of course, very often we don't we can't actually make that distinction because when we first see the patient, we may not have the biomarkers back yet, which would indicate whether there's myocardial necrosis. The first thing we have to do clinically is to risk stratify that patient. And on the basis of that risk stratification, we're basically doing two things. We're deciding how likely it is that the patient has obstructive coronary artery disease as the cause of their symptoms. And if that is a high likelihood in our mind, then we have to ask ourselves the second question, what's the risk of a bad outcome? And that's usually dominated by the acute findings, the baseline characteristics of the patient, their hemodynamic abnormalities, what their ECG shows, and what their biomarkers show. And we make an important early decision here as to whether or not we're going to follow a management strategy that involves taking a patient to angiography with the intent to perform revascularization if we find an obstructing lesion that's suitable for revascularization, or to pursue an early initial conservative management strategy. So we have to divide our patients into those in whom we're going to do an initial invasive strategy versus those in whom we will have an initial conservative strategy. And that defines a little bit about the medical therapy that we're going to be giving patients. In some of the medical therapy that we would be talking about is applicable no matter which of these management strategies we pick. For example, all patients should receive aspirin That's a class one level of evidence A recommendation. We do know that a very small proportion of patients are truly allergic to aspirin. And fortunately, we have a plan B. If they indeed are allergic to aspirin, we can turn to clopidogrel if they are aspirin intolerant. And we have an abundant set of data that says that that's an acceptable alternative for the patients who truly are allergic to aspirin. So that also is a class one level of evidence A recommendation. We would then consider initiating anticoagulant therapy, and depending upon which of the management strategies we pick, we'll determine which anticoagulant we're using. 
let me remind the listeners that I've, I've used the word anticoagulant here, and you may have in the past heard that some of the drugs that we'll be mentioning have been referred to as antithrombins. But our hematology colleagues have told us that that isn't really a good term to use because the drugs that we'll be talking about actually block the coagulation cascade in many more positions than strictly at thrombin. So they recommended that we use the term anticoagulant, but we felt it was important to remind readers of the guidelines and certainly the listeners of this program that by using the word anticoagulant there, we are not talking about warfarin or vitamin K antagonist. We're talking about drugs like unfractionated heparin, enoxaparin, bivalirudin, or fondaparinox. So let's start first with a patient who's managed by an initial invasive strategy. Then we want to initiate anticoagulant therapy with any of the drugs that I've mentioned, enoxaparin or unfractionated heparin, bivalirudin, or fondaparinox. That all of them are okay. We have evidence that says that they're all acceptable options. And to be perfectly frank, I think it's much more important for clinicians to actually have an agreed-upon recipe that they will use in their local institution rather than try and fight with each other or parse the evidence saying one is better than the other. What's more important is that everybody agrees that this is what we're going to do. So, for example, if the cath team is uncomfortable using fondaparinox, then that isn't a kind of drug that you'd want to give in your institution. Any one of them has, has evidence in support of it. You've done hospitals a great favor, too, so that there's clarity they can stock one of these and use it consistently across the institution. Absolutely. And let me just leap ahead, incidentally, on the fondaparinox. It's very interesting. This is a drug that can be given subcutaneously. It is an anti-10A agent, a specific anti-10A agent. It does have to combine with antithrombin. And what's been discovered is that it, in the doses that were used, it is associated with a little lower risk of bleeding compared to some of the other drugs, but it's only really been compared to enoxaparin hasn't been compared to unfractionated heparin or bivalirudin, so we really don't know that comparison. But fondaparinox cannot be safely used alone in the cath lab because of the risk of catheter thrombosis. So we indicated that if you do ultimately take a patient to the cath lab, if they have received fondaparinox upstream, that is before going to the cath lab, you have to give an additional intravenous agent that has anti-2A or anti-thrombin activity, and that could be unfractionated heparin or bivalirudin. So let me just say that once you make the decision that you're going to proceed to angiography, there is a recommendation in the guidelines to amplify the antiplatelet regimen beyond just aspirin, and that would involve at least giving either clopidogrel or an intravenous 2B3A inhibitor. And if there's going to be a great delay to angiography, the patient has many high-risk features or they have recurrent episodes of ischemic discomfort, the recommendation is to actually give both a clopidogrel and an IV 2B3 inhibitor and then take the patient to the cath lab and decide what to do based upon the findings at angiography. Briefly, the initial conservative strategy should not be viewed as a management option where we're never going to take the patient to the cath lab. It simply should be considered a strategy where we initially attempt to manage the patient medically. That would involve giving aspirin, 
clopidogrel for patients aspirin intolerant, and then an anticoagulant for a period of time. And here we don't have evidence for the use of bivalirudin for an initial conservative strategy. So if you look at the guideline, you only see enoxeparin, unfractionated heparin, or fondaparinox listed there, but you don't see bivalirudin because there hasn't been a trial on that. It would also be important to initiate something to amplify antiplatelet therapy, initiating clopidogrel as recommended, and considering a brief course of treatment with eptifibotide or tyrofiban. And then evaluating how the patient does. Do they have recurrent episodes of ischemia? What's their ejection fraction? How do they look on a stress test? If anything comes back in a worrisome direction, that patient would then cross over from the initial conservative strategy to an invasive strategy. And maybe we should just briefly say, what do you do when you have the angiogram results? You have three broad options. You're going to say, okay, this is an individual who is a candidate for PCI more and more these days with a stent being placed, or there's a very extensive coronary disease or it's in critical locations like a bifurcation of the left main or three-vessel coronary disease and a diabetic with depressed LV function, that's a person who we would probably recommend sending to coronary artery bypass graft surgery. Sometimes we encounter findings on the angiogram that suggest that medical therapy would be perfectly acceptable In clinical trials that actually enroll patients with unstable angina or non-ST elevation MI, only about 50% actually undergo angiography followed by stenting. So medical therapy remains an important treatment strategy. It's getting better and better these days with aggressive use of antiplatelet agents and statins to try and drive the LDL down. So I wouldn't discard medical therapy as a very effective treatment option for these patients as well. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright. Our guest today is Dr. Elliot Antman, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and director of the Samuel A. Levine Cardiac Unit at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. We're discussing the latest guidelines for unstable angina and non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. Elliot, if a patient is on the conservative track, uh, speak to us about the follow-up evaluation. Let's talk about prior to discharge. If a patient is initially managed by a conservative strategy, these are the kinds of things that we would recommend that clinicians do. Continuously monitor that patient for any subsequent events that necessitate angiography. For example, do they have any recurrent episodes of discomfort? We want to look at that patient's left ventricular ejection fraction. If it's less than 40, we'd worry about the patient having compromised LV function. That's an individual who we might refer for diagnostic angiography. And prior to discharge, in a patient who's had no recurrent episodes of ischemia and has a well-preserved ejection fraction, we do one last thing to make sure that we're not sending a patient home who might be at risk for repeated episodes of unstable angina in the future, and that's to do a stress test. Depending upon the patient's baseline electrocardiogram, that stress test may strictly be with ECG monitoring, or it could have an additional component with imaging, and that might be with nuclear imaging, or it could be with echocardiographic imaging. If the patient has a stress test result that indicates they are not at low risk, that's an individual who we would take to the cath lab prior to discharge. 
many of the people listening may have primary care responsibilities for these patients, may not be making the decision about that initial aggressive or invasive versus conservative strategy, but they're certainly responsible for overseeing patients' medications. I think this guideline gave us greater clarity about the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and also hormone replacement therapy. Tell us about that. Yes, very good point. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which are a broad class of drugs of which there are nine separate subclasses, are drugs that are frequently taken for musculoskeletal discomfort or chronic pain conditions. And very often when we are wound up with all the decisions that we have to make for the management of the patient's ischemic burden, we overlook other medications that actually could impact on the patient's course in the hospital or after they've been discharged from the hospital. And we're talking there about the concomitant medications, particularly here non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. We have learned from a number of trials that the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, the NSAIDs, are not benign and they can increase a patient's risk of thrombosis, which could put them at risk for a myocardial infarction or a stroke. Well, and particularly in this population, so many people are on those medications and may not think of them as medicines because at least some of them are available over the counter. So, yeah, very good point. So yes. important to, to clarify that. And then uh, in closing, uh, statements about HRT? Well, uh, I think that uh, the, the HRT story uh, has, has had its ups and downs. Uh, if I can come up with a simple phrase, and you can tell me whether or not uh, you think this gets the message across, uh, I would say don't start <laughs> and, <laughs> and stop <laughs> would be the message. Uh, Very helpful. So that if, if a woman who has an acute coronary syndrome event is on hormone replacement therapy, I would recommend that we discontinue that medication and certainly not start it with the hopes of actually minimizing the risk for development of atherosclerotic vascular disease because, in fact, that woman may be more at risk for thrombotic events. There are, fortunately, a number of alternatives that are available to deal with menopausal symptoms and probably consultation with uh, the woman's gynecologist would be particularly important here rather than simply continuing uh, HRT. I remember seeing a patient in my office several months ago who was 80 and showed up on hormone replacement therapy because it had been started you know, 30, 35 years earlier, and nobody thought about discontinuing it. And I was horrified because here she had hypertension, she had a history of uh, phlebitis in her right calf, and uh, I shrieked with horror when I saw that she was actually (laughs) still on HRT. I think uh, we we need to bring you back and talk about medication adherence and uh, medication reconciliation. We've been learning more about the latest guidelines for unstable angina and non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction with Dr. Elliot Antman. Dr. Antman, thank you so much for being our guest today. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.